The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. It was the height of World War II, and Nazi Germany was expanding its kingdom. And so on June 4th, Winston Churchill spoke to the House of Commons of the Parliament of the United Kingdom, calling them to arms, calling them to action, calling them to engage in the hostility that was surrounding them. In part of his speech, he said this, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. In late September, we started this series on First Peter, a series about suffering and salvation. And week after week, it has proven to be extremely applicable as we as a congregation has gone through much suffering, whether it be a broken shoulder or a heart attack or a collapsed lung or the loss of a loved one. We are reminded that suffering is everywhere and that the message of First Peter is extremely applicable to us today because there is brokenness in the world. There is suffering whether it be physical, relational, emotional. And today, Peter is calling us to arms. We're going to look at chapter 5, the whole thing, so we can move on to Christmas next week. But he's calling us to action, calling us to engage the brokenness of this world, calling us to step in and to fight the good fight, to not play possum, but to stand firm in Christ. And so that's the message we will hear today. If you would please open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be looking at the whole chapter today. It's page 1016 in the Red Bible and page 1319 in the Children's Bible. You know, when we look into the brokenness of our world, it may seem very, very overwhelming. And so Peter's words today are extremely practical practical instructions on how to fight the good fight in the midst of suffering and in the midst of pain and to bring forth the glorious kingdom of God. And so let's read together 1 Peter chapter 5, the whole thing. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory of That is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there is much wrong with the world. And it is for that reason that Christmas happened. It is for that reason that Christ was born. Lord, pray from your word you would encourage us, challenge us, and guide us in the path you would lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So let's jump right in. Peter starts this call to arms by addressing the elders. It's an appropriate place to start because leadership is most important when suffering is highest. Not only that, but leadership is often the target of persecution. And so their leadership is of utmost importance. And so Peter starts with his credentials as an elder. If you look there in verse 1 with me, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Peter is not only an apostle, which he says in one one, but he's also an elder in the church. So he can identify with them. And he says, and a witness of the suffering of Christ. Peter has seen what it looks like to lead in the midst of suffering because he has seen his Savior do so. He goes on, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter knows that our hope is not in this world, but in the world to come. And that is his hope as an elder and says that should be theirs as well. And so Peter here lays out his credentials to speak into the midst of suffering and leadership in the midst of suffering. And then he goes on to exhort the elders saying, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, I'm guessing that Peter uses this analogy of shepherding because it was the analogy that Jesus used when he restored Peter. Maybe you remember, but after Christ rose from the dead, he is reinstating Peter and he asks Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus responds saying, shepherd my sheep. It's the same Greek word used here, shepherd my sheep. Shepherds and elders 
have many of the same responsibilities. I just want to list out four for you quickly. First, shepherds are called to protect the flock, just as elders are. Just as a shepherd protects his sheep from literal wolves, elders are called to protect the sheep, the flock, the church from theological wolves. Now, that might be someone who comes into the congregation preaching a false gospel or wanting to be divisive, but more than likely, those false teachings come in through things like books or songs or other things of that matter. And so the elders take very seriously guarding the doctrine of the church. You may or may not know this, but every song that we sing on Sunday morning is approved by your elders. Chad sends it out during the week, the song that that we're going to sing at the end of the service. The elders had to approve this week to make sure that that it was held up to the stance of Scripture. It's not based on their opinion on how it sounds or how repetitive it is or isn't is. The only criteria is, is it congruent with the word of God? And so shepherds, elders are called to protect their flock. They're also called to feed the flock. If you have a King James version of the Bible, verse two starts not by saying shepherd the flock, but feed the flock. That word is used interchangeably. And throughout first Peter, we saw that the superfood for Christians is the word of God. And so elders are called to ladle out the word of God, not the newest and coolest Christian trend. We're not called to make God's word palatable to society. We're simply called to administer generously and liberally the word of God. And so that's why we teach from the word of God on Sunday mornings. That's why we sing the word of God. That's why Chad quotes the word of God. That's why we put the word of God on the screen before the service that you can meditate on the word of God. The word of God is what we are to feed you with. We, we, we feed you on Sunday mornings. We feed you throughout the week in community groups and small groups and counseling with the word of God. Faithful elders feed God's flock, God's word. Third, they are called to care for the flock. Verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That is to care for or to look after. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Elders are called to care for the flock, not because they have to, or because they want the recognition that might come with it, but they're called to care for God's flock eagerly and willingly in service to God, knowing that Christ's church is precious to Christ. That in a way, God is entrusting his bride to us to care for her, to love her, to shepherd her. Elders care for the flock in many ways, walking with them while they are hurting, counseling them when they are broken, disciplining them and confronting them when they are involved in self-destructive behaviors. Elders are called to shepherd the flock by protecting them, by feeding them, by caring for them, and finally by leading them. Look at verse three. It says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I was listening to a sermon this week, and it told a story of a group of Americans that went over to Israel for a tour. And they were on this bus, and the tour guide talked about shepherds. He talked about how shepherds always lead from the front. They never lead from the back of the flock, but always lead from the front. And they, they, they lead the way that they're supposed to go. And as they're driving the bus, lo and behold, they come upon a flock of sheep, and the person is driving them from the back. 
And as the tourists point this out, I'm sure the tour guide is a little bit embarrassed. And so he stops the bus and he goes out to talk to the man. He comes back on the bus and he announces that man is not the shepherd of the flock. He's the butcher. (laughs) You know, it is true that sometimes shepherds need to chase down their wandering sheep. It is true that sometimes they are called to discipline their sheep. And throughout scripture, elders are called to do that. But first and foremost, shepherds are called to lead their sheep by example. First Timothy and Titus lays out character qualifications of elders that they might do this. In first Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ." The primary character you are to look for in elders is not that they are leaders, but that they are followers, that they are followers of Christ, that they follow Christ in all they do. And when they mess up, which they will, they are repentant followers that turn again to Christ. John Maxwell, who is a Christian that specializes in leadership, puts this very succinctly. He says, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. A leader is one who knows the way. He knows Christ. He knows the teachings of Christ. He goes the way. In other words, he practices the teachings of Christ. He lives it out. But then he also shows the way. He teaches others. The way of Christ. Peter continues verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, being an elder is often a thankless job. 98%, 99% of the work is behind the scenes. Nobody knows about it. And to be honest, nobody should know about it most of the time. Elders aren't recognized for the Saturday mornings they give up to do counseling week after week. They're not recognized when they cancel their vacation to care for someone who's in a desperate spot. They're not recognized when they're called names for being faithful. Elders are not recognized for getting up at 5 a.m. every other week to meet and talk and shepherd God's church. And maybe they shouldn't be. But the cool thing here that Peter tells us is that the congregation doesn't know all the things they do. Jesus does. And that's way better. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, my guess is with that crown, they'll do the same thing the elders do in Revelations chapter 4, which is cast it at the feet of Jesus and say, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. But Jesus sees the faithful service. Now, a couple quick points of application. First off, if you're here and you're an elder, there's only, there's not a whole lot. You may not know who they are, so let me just tell you. We have ruling elders, Mark Kaiser, Jeff Frick, Ron Young. Chad Bodwin, myself, Chris Steinbarger, our teaching elders. You may be weary from loving sheep that don't love you back. You may be burdened by those who don't appreciate your help. But remember, Christ sees all things. And you are loving his bride. And you will receive the unfading crown of glory to lay Jesus' feet. 
Secondly, if you are just a part of the congregation, a valuable, precious sheep of God, because our elders are not seeking recognition, you may not know a lot of the things that they are doing, but I would encourage you to support your elders, to submit to your elders. This is what he says in verse 5. Look with me. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject or submit to the elders. Now, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, unfortunately, but there's probably a problem which the younger Christians in the church had all these great ideas and they were causing division in the church by their eagerness and, and, and Peter's warning them to, to submit to their elders. And this calling to submission, as we've talked about before, is not a calling to not, you should still share your great ideas. You should still go to elders with your concerns. You should even confront elders if they're sinning. It doesn't call you to not do those things. But what it's saying is that you express those things and you go to the elders, that you support the elders, that you assume the best of them and not the worst. Yes, you engage them. Yes, you confront them. But in the end, you support them. And so this is the first call of Aaron for elders to shepherd the flock and for the church to support them. Peter continues saying that we should be humble. He calls us to humility. Now, this may not sound like a weapon in a war. It isn't typically, but it might be for this war, the most important weapon we have. Peter exhorts humility in two directions. First, a horizontal direction, a horizontal humility towards one another in the church, and then a vertical humility with God. And so let's first look at that horizontal humility in our relationships to one another. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Continue. We already covered that. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what humility is. Sometimes we think humility means saying, oh, I'm not really good at that. It's kind of this self-deprecation all the time, you know. Oh, I'm not really good at teaching. I'm not really good at weaving. I'm not really good at painting. I'm not really good at this. I'm not really good at that. There are other people far better than me. But that is not the biblical understanding of humility at all. Because, in fact, that type of disposition draws attention to yourself. Biblical humility on a horizontal plane is placing the needs of others before your own. Philippians 2 says it very clearly with Christ as our example. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It isn't saying that others are more significant than you, but it's saying count them as more significant than you. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, which are important, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Someone has said humility in a very succinct way. This, this horizontal humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. If you can think of a person in your life that you say, that is a humble person. My guess is it is a person that serves other people. And so we are called to this horizontal humility, which is a key to fighting against the brokenness of this world. Secondly, he goes on 
to say not only should we have humility horizontally, but we must also have it vertically. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Vertical humility comes from a right understanding of who God is and who we are in light of who God is. We are sinful. God is holy. We are limited. God is all-knowing. We are finite. God is infinite. We are condemned, but God is gracious and pardons us. And most of all, in this passage, we are weak, but God is strong. You know, verse 5 ends by saying that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, pride isn't simply a sin. Pride is the sin. Pride is the sin beneath all other sins. Pride was the sin that led the devil to be cast out of heaven. Pride was the sin that led Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Pride is the sin beneath all other sins because pride says, I know better than God. Or I do not need God because I can do this on my own strength and my own power. And when we put God off, when we, when we work and operate out of pride instead of humility, depending on God, we are filled with anxiety. See, anxiety comes from the pride of trying to control your own situations, from trying to manipulate it according to your power and according to your wisdom. But vertical humility and trust all of our pain and all of our persecution and all of our suffering and even our future into the hands of an awesome God. Corey Tenboom, who suffered great suffering, said it this way. She said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Pride is self-reliance, but humility is God-reliance. And so Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him. This tells us something that might make us very anxious, that anxiety is a sin. And you might be thinking, oh, great. Now I'm anxious that I can't be anxious. And this is really a problem for me. You know, it is good and right to have concerns. But time and again throughout scripture, we were told to be anxious about nothing. Alistair Begg had a great line. He said, the presence of anxiety is directly linked to the absence of humility. Let me say that again, because I don't think we make that connection often. The presence of anxiety is directly linked to the absence of humility. You know, when we are anxious, believe it or not, it's because we are proud. Humility focuses us on God, and pride focuses us on ourselves. And if we focus on God and who he is and what he can do, it takes our anxiety away. And so let me ask you, where are you anxious, brother? Where are you anxious, sister? What wakes you in the middle of the night? Is it anxiety over finances or relationships, your job, your GPA, safety for yourself or for a loved one? The remedy for anxiety is humility. To trust God with it. To cast all your anxieties upon God. 
Now, Peter gives us three reasons why we can trust God with our anxieties, why we can cast all of our anxieties upon God. Let me just point them out to you quickly. First, we are under the mighty hand of God. This phrase should bring our minds back to the Exodus. If you remember in the Exodus, the people were being persecuted and they were suffering in Egypt. But by the mighty hand of God, they were brought out of suffering and pain through the plagues, through dividing the Red Sea. They were brought out to the promised land. That same God that delivered Israel will deliver you. Secondly, we need not be anxious about anything because at the proper time, God will exalt you. God may exalt you in this life. He may not. But if you are in Christ, you will be exalted in the life that is to come. And so we need not worry about exalting ourselves. God will do it on our behalf because of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we need not be anxious because God cares you. Some of you don't believe this. I probably don't believe it very often either. But God is not indifferent towards you. Do you believe that? God has not forgotten about you. Do you believe that? God cares deeply about you. Do you believe that? If you are in Christ, you have been born again into the family of God. You're his girl. You're his boy. He watches over you. He loves you. He cares for you. Even in the midst of suffering. You know, it's amazing how God times these passages. I don't think of myself as a very anxious person, pretty laid back, I would say. Well, this past week, I needed to have two hard conversations. And one thing that will make me anxious are hard conversations that I have to have. And, and one night, I, I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about this conversation that I had to have. And as I woke up around four in the morning, finally, God put on my heart these very words, Dan... You are under the mighty hand of God. You have nothing to be anxious about. Cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. Where are you anxious? Child of God, you are under his hand. Cast all your anxieties upon him. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So this is our call to arms. Elders to shepherd the flock. The flock to humbly love one another and depend upon God. Thirdly, he says we are called to resist the devil. When it comes to the devil, Christians make two common mistakes. As a matter of fact, the world makes two common mistakes. One mistake is to minimize the devil. Another mistake is to maximize the devil. On one side, you give the devil too little power. And on the other side, you give the devil too much power. And Peter confronts both errors in these verses. First, he comes to those who minimize the work of the devil. In verse 8, he says, be sober-minded. Again, Peter is calling us to engage our brain time and time and time again as we fight this battle. He says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour. There's a great line I heard from a movie that I have never seen. And it says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world what? That he doesn't exist, right? Do you remember that the devil exists? Do you believe the devil exists or has he tricked you? You know, the Bible traces through with the talking about Satan and the devil. It calls him Lucifer, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the accuser, our adversary, an angel of light, the Antichrist, Beelzebub, the God of this world, the fiery red dragon, murderer, liar, power of darkness, prince of the power of the air, ruler of darkness, the thief, the tempter. But here, Peter is not only telling us that the devil exists, but that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I don't think Peter was thinking about a zoo in which there is a lion who has set off and we're safe behind this protective wall. He's probably thinking about a Roman amphitheater in which, in which they were set apart from human beings and had blood dripping from their fangs. And he is saying... That the devil is strong, that the devil is destructive, and the devil is on the prowl. And we must not minimize him by either ignoring him or by making him into this cutely, cute, cuddly character. You know, it amazes me that we name sports teams after the devil. Like, what is up with that? Like, we don't have any teams named Hitler. Why do we have teams named the devils or the red devils? Or we name hot sauces or, or roller coasters. Diablos, right? We're making him cute. We're making him cuddly. We're making him okay. But behind all persecution of all Christians for all time is the devil. Satan is the one who is fostering these lies in people's hearts to hurt one another. The devil is the source behind the wickedness of this world. He's the one who deceives us and leads us to doubt and despair and shame. And so we must not make the mistake of minimizing the devil. The second danger is that we maximize the devil, that we give him too much credit. Look at verse 9. Peter says, resist him. Why does Peter command that? Because in Christ you can resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, the, te- the devil does tempt us. The devil does try to deceive us. The devil does try to lead us into sin. And Satan may have power over circumstances or people around you. But if you are in Christ, Satan does not have power over you. Have you heard the saying, the devil made me do it? Christians cannot say that. You cannot say the devil made me do it. Because according to God's words, Christians can resist the devil. And the only power that the devil has over you is the power that you give to him. You see, Satan works in collaboration with our sin and with our flesh. He tempts us, but he cannot make us sin. You saw this in the wilderness with Jesus. He gives all of these temptations to Christ. And yet Christ does not cave. Satan did not have power over him there, and he doesn't have power over him in our hearts either. 1 John 4, 4 says it this way, For he who is in you, being Christ, is greater 
more powerful, more wise, more glorious than he who is in the world. Carl Armerding recounts an experience when he went to a zoo and saw the zookeeper go into the den of this wildcat is what it says. And he says, as I stood there, the attendant entered the cage through a door on the opposite side. He had nothing in his hands but a broom. Carefully closing the door, he proceeded to sweep the floor of the cage. He observed that the worker had no weapon to ward off an attack by the beast. In fact, when he got to the corner of the cage where the wildcat was lying, he poked the animal with the broom. The wildcat hissed at him and then lay down in another corner of the enclosure. The man remarked to the attendant, you certainly are a brave man. And he responded, no, I'm not brave. As he continued to sweep, well, then that cat must be tame. No, cat's not tame. So if you aren't brave and that cat isn't tame, then I can't understand why he doesn't attack you. And the zookeeper turns to him and says, Mr., He's old, and he doesn't have any teeth. (laughs) It says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, if you're a Christian, he can't devour you. You need not fear the devil. You need to watch out for the schemes of the devil, flee from the devil, resist the devil, humbly depend upon God, but ultimately you are secure in Christ. Christians need to look out for the devil. Be on guard against the snares of the devil. But looking to God, we need not fear the devil. For greater is he who is inside of us than he who is in the world. Finally, we're called to stand in grace. Look at verse 10 with me. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter is reminding us one last time that we must understand our suffering in the context of God's active grace in our life. Peter describes it in four ways here. And I think, I think the things that he is describing are happening in the midst of suffering, but will culminate in glory and be perfected. The first thing he says is that God himself will restore you. This is to put things in order. God starts this restoration by putting us in a right relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. But now he is continuing to restore our priorities, our thoughts, our actions, our words. To be coherent with what it means to be fully human, to be a child of God. He's restoring. He takes broken things and puts them back together and makes them beautiful. Secondly, it says the God of all grace will himself confirm you. That is to make you stable so that you won't fall over under the weight of persecution and suffering. Third, the God of all grace will himself strengthen you, giving you the power to honor Christ in the midst of suffering and giving you the power to resist the devil. And finally, he says the God of all grace himself will establish you. That is, he will ground you in Christ. He will unite you in Christ so that you will not be washed off the foundation of Christ. You see, what Paul is saying here in verse 10 is that all you need to endure suffering, all you need to endure persecution and pain and the devil 
is given to you by the God of all grace. You know, when I was little, I played baseball, and one of the positions I played was catcher. It's where the coach put me, put me a catcher, thought I was good at it. That's where you're going to be. And they, the coach not only put me a catcher, but the coach also supplied everything I needed. He gave me my shin guards. He gave me my chest protector, my face mask. He even gave me the catcher's mitt. He gave me all I needed to play the position. In life, we will suffer. But the good news is you do not go alone. That God goes with you and he equips you for the trials that are to come. And he restores you through those trials and confirms and strengthens and establishes you to endure those trials. He is the God of all grace. Maybe trials seem so daunting because you look at your own strength and your own abilities. But we have this great assurance that God will equip us for whatever comes our way. Overwhelmed by the thought of Christ's triumph and grace, Peter continues and goes into praise. And he says this in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then I think at this point, he takes a pen from his scribe Silvanus, which is also Silas. And he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. For those who are in Christ, the true grace of God is not that your life will be free from suffering. It is not that your life will be free from persecution. It is not that your life will be free from pain. But the true grace of God, as we have seen throughout 1 Peter, is that God is with you in your suffering. That the true grace of God is that God will use your suffering. It will not go to waste. He will use your suffering to refine you, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. The true grace of God is that there will be one day where there'll be an end to all suffering. And that today is just a short while compared to the scope of all eternity. And so this is our call to arms. The elder should shepherd the flock that God has given to them faithfully, that the church should humble themselves both horizontally and vertically, that we should resist the devil and stand firm in the grace that God provides without fail. Let me end by just reading these final verses. Verse 13. She who is at Babylon. Now this is probably talking about the church that Peter is in, uh, in Rome. Rome was called Babylon sometimes because they were both evil. Anyways, and um, he says, She who is at Babylon, talking about the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That's cultural. You don't have to practice that. And then he ends by saying this. And this, honestly, this might be my favorite sentence in all of First Peter. Something we, I just typically read over. But he says this. Peace to all of you who are, who are in Christ. Here's the reason why that strikes me. Throughout 1 Peter, what has he been saying? He's saying, you're suffering? More is coming. You're going to suffer some more. Don't be surprised when you face trials of many kinds. As long as you are alive, there will be pain. Expect persecution. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peace be with you. You know, peace is defined as tranquility, harmony, security, safety. This is a great way to end 1 Peter. Because, in fact, this is what the whole letter of 1 Peter is about. That although hell might be raging outside of you, you can have a peace in Christ within. You know, many of you here know Jan Boyce. She's a member here. I think it was the third week we were going through this series. She had a collapsed lung and went into the hospital because her lung was filling with fluid. As they tried to heal her, nothing was helping. And so they did some tests and they found out that Jan had cancer. They did surgery to remove the cancer. And she was hoping to wait till after the holidays to, to start her treatment. But the cancer came raging back. And so she decided to move to Colorado to stay with her daughter and get treatment out there. And before she left, I had the privilege of sitting down and, and praying with her. And after I left that, I remember telling Chad and, and others, I'm not sure I've ever seen Jan this content. I'm, never sh- I, I'm not sure if I've ever seen Jan this joyful and this at peace. Now, don't get me wrong. It's appropriate to grieve, and I'm sure she has and she will, and it's good for her to do that because we should, more than anyone else, grieve over the effects of the fall. But the point is this, whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever storm is raging around us, we can have a peace inside because we are hid in Christ, because he is our shelter in the midst of the storm. You see, the devil may be your enemy. And others may see you as their enemy. But the good news of the gospel is that you are no longer enemies with the one who matters most. In Christ, we are now at peace with the most dominant and powerful force in the universe. In Christ, we are at peace with God. Because Jesus, the perfect elder in utmost humility, surrendered himself to the point of death, even death on the cross for sinners like you and me. At the cross, he suffered the torment of Satan and the wrath of God, which you and I deserve because of our sin. And he triumphed over Satan by raising from the grave that he might stand firm, that we might stand firm in the grace of God and have a peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of suffering. If you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, Your world outside of you can be very peaceful. You could have plenty of money, good relationship with your family. But you are tormented on the inside and you're probably wondering why. You're probably wondering, everything in my life seems so peaceful. Why is hell raging inside of me? On the other hand, if you're in Christ, hell may be raging outside of you but you have the peace of Christ within. This is the truth of the gospel that is so glorious. Christians, this is our call to arms. If you're discouraged, stand strong in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. If you're tempted, stand strong in the strength of Christ. 
If you're suffering, stand strong in the promises and the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for inspiring Peter to write this letter to the churches of Asia Minor. Thank you for protecting it that we get to read it today. Thank you for guarding it, that it would be passed on throughout the generations, that we too might be encouraged with the gospel in the midst of suffering, that we might have a peace that surpasses all understanding because we are hid in Christ and we are at peace with you. Lord, pray that as we go and encounter many difficult things, that we would put this in the practice, that we would remind her that your hand is over us, your mighty hand, and that we do not go alone, but we go with the God of the entire universe. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.